think we'll uh, start now. Um, thanks for sticking with us. It's been a great conference so far. Um, we have three uh, great panelists here. Um, I'm just going to start by saying uh, I know economists have contempt for journalists like me. I'm Craig Torres from Bloomberg News because of our propensity to turn complex ideas into simplistic overviews. So accepting that criticism, I think I'll provide a simplistic overview. Um, I think much of the discomfort you're hearing here today uh, is because people sense the monetary policy regime is shifting. And it's partly happening because of events in the real economy, low inflation and low productivity, but also because central bankers have spent the past couple years defending what they did and, in essence, laying the groundwork to do it again. But not only do it again, but to be even more aggressive and activist. Um, so I'm not, uh, as a journalist again, I'm not uh, in the business of being normative. I'm not here to say that's good, that's bad. I do, I'm, I am in the business to spot changes and I think this is happening. For the normative, I'm gonna leave you to my panelists. Uh, we're gonna start with uh, Lawrence White. He's got a paper on uh, the need to exit from credit allocation, so take it away. Okay, so uh, this session is entitled The Fed's Exit Strategy Versus Fundamental Reform, and I took a gamble that if I wrote about the Fed's exit strategy, the need for an exit strategy, that my co-panelists would talk about fundamental reform, and I think it's worked out that way. Uh, so let me remind you what it is we need to exit from. I'm sure you've all seen slides like this one before showing the Fed's growing asset portfolio. Uh, and it grew in three stages, QE1, QE2, and QE3. So uh, according to this chronology, the Fed didn't announce QE1 until after it was over. I'm not sure that's right. But we see a jump up in Fed assets. Uh, but actually, the QE1 is usually uh, attributed, uh, described as the growth in mortgage-backed securities. Right? So I guess the timing is right. They start from basically zero and grow to this big, thick blue snake in the middle there. QE2, the mortgage-backed securities stay basically the same, but what's labeled nominal notes and bonds, that's treasury securities held by the Fed, that grows uh, over 2010. Uh, and then things sort of hold constant for a while, and then QE3 is announced, which widens both the holdings of treasury securities and the holding of mortgage-backed securities. Now, this has often been described as an expansive, expansionary monetary policy, because the total of the Fed's liabilities, uh, sorry, these are the assets, but on the liability side, the liabilities also expand. And the Fed's liabilities are monetary in nature. The monetary base are the Fed's liabilities. Uh, but I want to start out by making the point that the way quantitative easing was practiced, it wasn't much of a monetary policy. So, Here's the difference between what happened to the monetary base and what happened to M2. And to get them on the same scale, I had to divide M2 by 10. But even at this, <laughs> at this uh, magnification, you can see the path of M2 is pretty flat or pretty unvarying compared to the pre-crisis path of M2. And if you look at the actual growth rates, M2 grew at 6.3% in the decade before 2008 and it's grown at 6.6% since 2008, so hardly any change in the long-run trend. Whereas the monetary base, which was growing at 6%, has been growing at 23% per annum, with you know, some big bursts in the middle uh, since 2008. Right? But M2 is our usual measure of money held by the public, and that's continued to grow at the same pace. So. This wasn't a monetary policy in the sense of changing the money in the hands of the public. Now, how is it possible for the monetary base to grow so much without M2 growing? Because the money in banking textbook will tell you other things equal. Banks should take their excess reserves and lend them out, and so the broader monetary aggregates should grow at the same rate uh, as the monetary base. But of course, other things weren't equal. 
And the big difference was, so you, you see the ratio of M2 to the monetary base went from about 10 to 1 to about 4 to 1, uh, or less. The big difference, of course, is the paying of interest on reserves. So if you like, you can think of that as sterilization. The Fed de deliberately sterilized the effect of the M0 growth, the monetary base growth, on the broader monetary aggregates, on money held by the public. If it's not a monetary policy, what is it? Uh, I call it preferential credit allocation. It was not designed to change money in the hands of the public. It was designed to change asset prices. So the Fed wanted to go out and buy a large portfolio of assets, in particular in QE1 and QE3, mortgage-backed securities, uh, in order to raise their prices relative to the prices of other financial assets, and thereby help the housing industry. Uh, so that's the sense in which it's a preferential credit allocation toward the housing industry. And implicitly, they never say this, but at the expense of other possible uses of credit. Uh, David Malpass uh, sort of alluded to that uh, in his presentation. Uh, so that was the point. The Fed wanted to buy, turned out to be $1.8 trillion in mortgage-backed securities without it bleeding through into M2 and thereby into inflation. Uh, you can, if you like, you can call that a fiscal policy. It's a fiscal policy in the sense that the Fed is borrowing from the banks. It's paying interest on reserves, so it's borrowing from the banks and paying them interest on the loan, and then taking those funds and using them to hold this portfolio of mortgage-backed securities. That sort of program has traditionally been the purview of Congress to go out and borrow money and use it to try to prop up some industry. But here is the Fed operating what would normally be a, considered a fiscal policy, but under the cover of monetary policy. But as you see from the path of M2, it's not really a monetary policy. Uh, and the Fed's been doing other things to help the housing industry. In particular, it shifted the portfolio of treasuries toward long-term treasuries uh, in an order to, in what was called Operation Twist Two, in an effort at least this is how the Fed explained it at the time, uh, to bring down long-term interest rates relative to short-term rates and thereby lower interest rates on 15- and 30-year mortgages. So in the, in the paper, and, and the paper in your packet, by the way, is just kind of a down payment. The, uh, if you want the more recent draft, because I've been working on it all week, <laughs> uh, my email address is on the draft paper, so feel free to ask me for an update. Uh, so they, they've done this other thing, which is to lengthen their portfolio maturity in order to help the housing industry. Uh, I'm going to argue there was also another reason less discussed for that lengthening, and that is to improve the Fed's uh, fiscal position, uh, sorry, uh, income position. So here's what happened to the holdings of mortgage-backed securities. They went from zero uh, very quickly up in QE1. Then there was kind of a lull, and then they started growing again in QE3. And they've maxed out at, well, I don't know if I shouldn't say that. <laughs> They're currently lulling at $1.8 And there are no plans to roll that back. In fact, uh, the Fed has made repeated statements. Janet Yellen has made repeated statements, and Bernanke before her, that as we return to normalization of monetary policy, we're not going to sell off this portfolio or even let it roll off. All right, so I'll have to come back to what kind of normalization can you do if you're not going to shrink the portfolio. Uh, and here's a picture showing the lengthening of the maturities. So you can see that before the crisis, treasuries of over 10 years in maturity were about 10% uh, of the Fed's portfolio. And the average maturity was slightly under five years. Uh, but they've grown the long-term part of the portfolio much more than the rest of the portfolio. And this diagram shows it even more directly. The share of securities of 10 plus years, this includes both mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, has gone from 10% to, well, it went way up, and now it's settled at somewhere more than 50%. Right? So this is designed to bring down long-term interest rates relative to short-term interest rates. Uh, but that has allocative effects. 
which is what I'm about to complain, start complaining about. <laughs> uh, now, I've mentioned that there's also an effect on the Fed's income. So during the same period where the Fed is lengthening its portfolio, all interest rates are dropping. And if the Fed had remained with a, a portfolio with about a four-year average maturity, it would have earned a lot less income. Last year, the Fed earned $116 billion in interest income. It had more interest income than any other financial institution on the planet. Most of that gets uh, rebated to the Treasury. $1.9 billion goes to the Fed's own budget. Uh, about $6 billion goes to interest on reserves. And basically, the rest goes uh, back to the Treasury. Well, a little bit goes to as dividends to the Fed's shareholders. The rest goes to the Treasury. So there isn't a, a sort of direct statement on the Fed's balance sheet of what the average maturity of its uh, portfolio is. It's split up into categories, but the longest category is 10 plus. So this took a little detective work. But by looking at the Fed's income statements, we can back out, right? So it's in, in its annual report, the Fed reports its interest income. And from its balance sheet, you can see the size of its portfolio. So you can figure out interest income over the size of the portfolio is the average rate of return on the Fed's interest earning assets. Uh, you can back out from that kind of an estimate of where in the yield curve the Fed is operating by figuring out what the rate of return is. Uh, so forgive me if these little blue bars are not quite evenly spaced, but I had to insert them by hand. <laughs> on the fr uh, I couldn't get Fred to uh, put them in there for me because uh, they don't have the Fed's income statement uh, among their statistics. But here's the yield on five-year bonds compared to the yield the Fed earns on its portfolio as a whole. And you can see it pretty much tracks the five-year bond yield up to 2008. Uh, so the Fed was holding just slightly below a five-year average maturity portfolio. But when yields on five-year bonds began to collapse, the Fed started lengthening its maturities. Uh, and from the current yield curve, you can kind of figure out what the Fed's current maturity is. Uh, I figure it's about 12 years, based on the Fed earning a little over 2.7% in, in 2014. And that corresponding, it's, it's kind of a chore to average the yield curve over the entire year. But uh, this one from the middle of the year is pretty much representative. But uh, these are all approximations. It, uh, it's holding about a 12-year portfolio, which has these two effects. One is to bring down long-term rates relative to short-term rates. And two, to provide the Fed and therefore the Treasury with more uh, income. And, as I was researching the paper, I found a, a statement in a blog post by the economist Willem Buter, which foresaw all this back in 2009. Uh, Buter said, uh, Ben Bernanke has allowed himself to become uh, the financier. Well, I should get the uh, actual quote here. Um, well, anyway. Uh, he's in the bag of the Treasury was the gist of it. Um, he's helping the Fed uh, earn more income. Uh, of course, when the Fed, the, where the Fed gets the interest on its Treasury portfolio is from the Treasury. <laughs> but then it gives it back to the Treasury. How is that a profit? It's a profit from the point of view of the Treasury no longer has to pay that interest to members of the public who were previously holding those securities. So it's a reduction in the Fed's uh, debt service requirements. So here's the normative thrust of the paper. Uh, this is a bad idea to have the Fed <laughs> allocating credit in this unauthorized, discretionary, preferential way. Right? So these kind of wasting of resources, this is something we count on the Congress to do. Right, to take taxpayers' money and put it in low-yield projects or negative-yield projects. Uh, it's, the, the Fed is trying to support the housing industry on some theory that this will help the economy. Right? But it's putting more funds 
into an industry which is already overbuilt, uh, it's not the best use of those financial funds. It comes with the opportunity cost of those funds going to hire, pay off more promising projects. So there's a deadweight cost to that, and that's the, the main thrust of the objection. Uh, and the Fed is trying to second guess what the private financial market is guessing are the high return product projects. And in the financial market, right, bankers and financiers are risking their own money or their fiduciaries' money, whereas the Fed is risking taxpayers' money. So it's an entirely different proposition. Uh, but there's not just the deadweight loss triangle, as economists call it. There's also what we call the Tulloch rectangle. There is now lobbying to be the recipient of the Fed's largesse. So I was recently invited to participate in a forum on the prospects for Puerto Rico to get a Fed bailout, all right? On the grounds that, hey, you bailed out the housing industry, they're systemically important, we're systemically important. So you need to either buy Puerto Rico debt or somehow help us restructure our debt. Um, so resources are going into that kind of activity now. You can't give away money costlessly even if you print money. Uh, so this is the sort of practical concern. We're going to reduce economic growth. We've already reduced economic growth in this country uh, by misallocating scarce uh, credit. Uh, and I, I've written and uh, talked in previous years at Cato Monetary Conferences about the moral hazard problem it creates when you direct credit to sort of favored recipients, uh, particularly if you do it to particular firms. It sort of lowers the penalty for failure, which means you get more risks being taken. Uh, and you, you're inviting cronyism, and again, especially if you're directing uh, funds to particular firms. Uh, but those are the sort of uh, consequences we want to avoid. So we need exit from this uh, credit allocation scheme. And the Fed is not planning on it. Right? They're not planning to shrink uh, the mortgage-backed securities portfolio. So if it's going to happen, it seems to me it's going to take some kind of congressional direction. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, we have uh, former Cleveland Fed President uh, Jerry Jordan. Thanks. <clears throat> Thank you, Craig. And um, thanks to Jim Dorn and to Cato for inviting me to participate in this great annual conference again. Before I get into some of the remarks in my paper, uh, Mike Walker, um, who's attending, participating in the conference today, pointed out that a lot of the discussion earlier today uh, related to the things that preceded what Larry was talking about. Larry did a very good job of documenting the from QE forward. Uh, but the, the buildup to the bubble, the Fed's role in creating the bubble in the first place, was kind of a mixed bag earlier today. And Mike pointed out that the 13th Federal Reserve Bank uh, operates more or less autonomously in its own district and had a very different experience. Uh, they had the same monetary policy, uh, but with different results. Now, they didn't have non-recourse lending. They didn't have quotas for housing authorities to buy subprime um, in, uh, instruments. They didn't have um, um, all of the other things that went in to creating the institutional arrangements and conditions that uh, our, the other 12 reserve banks were, were operating in. They didn't have um, uh, mortgage equity withdrawals, which added up to something like three and a half trillion dollars, I think, between 2001 and 2007. All of this uh, phenomenon has been well documented by Peter Wallison. And I think we do need to pay a lot of attention uh, in tr further trying to understand the bubble and the crash and all of that to um, how much of it was uh, things that were happening in the country politically, um, institutionally, in addition to what was going on with what we call our central bank. Now, my paper I call the eunuchification of monetary authorities. And I'm aware, as everyone, that a charge of impotence is a very serious issue and will be vigorously denied. And it should be. 
The charge needs to be made and a defense needs to be heard. Some may propose political Viagra to address any lack of potency. That's a conversation worth having. But it's also worth discussing whether the past century of management of monopoly fiat currencies by monetary authorities has run its course. And it's time to consider alternatives. Regardless of what may be taught today in intermediate monetary theory courses, we have arrived in a strange world in which the interest paid by foreign banking companies for the excess cash of federal home loan banks is somehow a gauge of the thrust of monetary policy actions of the central bank. It's even more strange that the technique that the central bank hopes to employ to influence such an overnight interest rate is through borrowing from Fannie, Freddie, other GSEs, and money market mutual funds. Not in any textbook I know of. Over half a century ago, Carl Bruner convinced young grad students at UCLA that the Federal Reserve's free conception hypothesis could not possibly serve as a reliable indicator of the stance of monetary policy. How quaint it is that now it seems that once upon a time, net borrowed reserves, if it increased from 300 million million to 400 million, would have been taken to be a significant tightening of monetary policy. Today, net free reserves is something in excess of two and a half trillion with a T. Where is the new Jim Miggs to explain that this makes no sense? Carl taught us about high-powered money, what we later came to call the monetary base. Today, at over four and a half trillion dollars, it has become zero-powered central bank money. The young grad students learned all about the parameters of the money multipliers and how to derive empirical estimates of their coefficients. Today, today, no one could possibly have the slightest idea about such parameters. The money, markets, uh, the money multipliers are broken, and all the king's horses cannot put them together again. For a variety of reasons discussed in my paper, there can be neither an excess supply of nor an excess demand for US dollars. And the central bank balance sheet is now unrelated to the stock of money outstanding. Further, and this is not developed in my paper, but I'll be adding some more comments in the paper about it before it's published, refers the reader to Mike Walker's research. Central bank actions do not influence interest rates. Two years ago at this conference, I offered two avenues through which quantitative easy could actually be contractionary. In this paper, I offer a third way in which QE has been counterproductive. However, the proposition that QE was a mistake does not lead to the conclusion that QE transactions can or should be unwound. There is no exit. An analysis, however preliminary, that large-scale asset purchases actually had a contractionary effect during the period of quantitative easing must be taken seriously. Certainly, the cessation of such transactions was desirable. The principle of do no harm applies to central banks as well as to medical doctors. Nevertheless, the problem of exit strategy remains. By that, some have in mind that the central bank balance sheet would shrink back to the pre-QE level and reserve requirements would once again become binding on commercial bank deposit creation. That simply is not going to happen. The past practice of conducting daily open market operations in order to closely control the overnight interbank lending rate, the federal funds rate, is not going to resume. Central bank purchases and sales of securities in the open market are no longer a primary tool of policymakers. The new tools, administering the interest rate on reserve deposits, IOR, and auctioning reverse repurchase agreements, RRP, have not been tested in an accelerating inflation environment. No matter how aggressively utilized, neither has any direct effect on money creation. 
The former IOR can be viewed simply as central bank borrowing from private banks, while the latter, RRP, is central bank borrowing from GSEs and money market mutual funds in the US and as well as around the world, about 135 of them last I knew. In theory, money market rates would be influenced by the rate the central bank offers for such borrowings. If higher rates paid by monetary authorities cause other interest rates to be higher, so the theory goes, businesses and households will curtail some credit finance purchases, aggregate demand for output would be moderated, and inflationary pressures would be mitigated. This, of course, requires several assumptions. Monetary policymakers must have considerable knowledge about the impact effects of the actions on other interest rates, the length of the lags involved before businesses and households respond to rising rates, and whether and how much real interest rates, rather than only nominal rates in an inflationary environment, are changing. Because there is zero historical experience employing these techniques, there is no basis for assessing their effectiveness. Central banks have demonstrably failed to achieve their objectives of higher inflation in the past five years, and their tools to contain inflation that emerges is untested. As noted in the paper, commercial bank deposit liabilities are now a function of the supply of earning assets offered to commercial banks. That is, the quantity of inside money created by the banking system depends on the demand for loans and aggregate supply of government bonds, mortgage-backed securities, and other suitable instruments available for acquisition by banks. A forecast of deposit growth and the money supply must be derived from a forecast of the supply of and the yields on earning assets, domestic and foreign, offered to the US banking system. That includes forecasts of government budget deficits that must be financed, as well as prices of commercial and residential real estate against which mortgage securities can be created. The knowledge necessary to make confident forecasts cannot be obtained from historical experience. My concluding observations are that for several years, major central banks have pronounced that the objective of massive quantitative easing, large-scale asset purchases, was to raise the inflation rate. That objective has not been achieved in spite of the quadrupling of the central bank balance sheet in the case of the United States. Because commercial banks are no longer reserve constrained, the historical linkage between the central bank balance sheet, the monetary base, and outstanding money supply has been broken. Changes in the size and composition of the central bank's assets and liabilities are unrelated to the amount of money in circulation. Without the ability to influence the supply of money, central bank open market operations have no influence on the rate of inflation. Announced changes in the overnight interbank rate, federal funds, have no implications for the thrust of policy actions on economic activity or the rate of inflation. If inflation should emerge, central banks have no tools for countering the pace at which the purchasing power of money declines. In the early stages of past periods of accelerating inflation, central banks mistakenly expanded their balance sheets as they leaned against the rising trend of nominal interest rates as an inflation premium was being incorporated by both lenders and borrowers. That is, policy actions of monetary authorities were accommodative uh, of the rising trend of prices. For the foreseeable future, no such accommodation will be necessary. The ballooning of central bank balance sheets has been more than sufficient to fuel extreme rates of inflation without further debt monetization. That is not a forecast that inflation will in fact occur. It is simply a statement of the new reality. Whether or not there is inflation is unrelated to anything central banks do or do not do. Thank you very much.
Thank you for that uh, very thought-provoking paper. I'm reminded that um, you know one of the euphemisms in central banking now is normalization. Uh, we're going to normalize, and thanks for pointing out that it's anything but normal that a central bank has to sell or create these assets called reverse repo simply to get the interest rate up. Our next paper by uh, Kevin Dowd and Martin Hutchinson. Well, thanks, Craig. Well, good afternoon, everybody. More than eight years after the onset of the crisis, I think it's clear to say that extreme Keynesian policies have not delivered. Same in Europe and in Japan after 25 years. Policymakers are not so much flogging a dead horse as a dead parrot. It wouldn't, it wouldn't go voom if you put 4,000 volts through it. Now, it's curious that in every discipline except Keynesian economics, practitioners first consider what caused a problem and then seek a treatment that addresses the cause. So in medicine, if the cause is excess, the remedy would be moderation or abstinence. But in Keynesian economics, if the cause is excess spending, then the treatment is even more excess spending. This is like a doctor advising an alcoholic to take another drink. We can only wonder what they expect to achieve other than the same result they got before, but this time on a grander scale. So consider this. First, LERP failed, then ZERP failed. So policymakers are preparing to slurp up on NERP. Now, I would describe this, or we would describe this as totally weird interest rate policy, or twerp. <laughs> now, there was an old lady who swallowed a fly. She swallowed a spider to catch the fly, and so on ended up eating a horse. She's dead, of course. She should have had the parrot. But let's go back to first principles. Thank you. Let's go back to first principles. The causes of our malaise are monetary meddling and government-induced incentives to take too many risks. This diagnosis suggests to us the following reform program. Recommoditize the dollar recapitalize the banks, restore strong governance in banking, and roll back government intervention. Now, on the subject of the currency, I'd like to begin with a fairly useless proposal. The question is, who should appear next on the, on the $10 bill? We propose this lady, Hetty Green. She is the patron saint of savers. In the robber baron era, she was more than a match for the best of them. Her enemies called her the Witch of Wall Street. She was also the most notorious miser ever. She made Scrooge look like Santa Claus. Despite her immense wealth, she once spent half a night searching in the dark for a two-cent stamp. And she wouldn't have her clothes cleaned because she didn't want them wearing out. And she was the richest woman in the world when she died. So, okay, monetary policy. <laughs> we want a robust monetary constitution. This would have no place for monetary policy or a central bank. But we must first put the dollar on a firm footing. The obvious reform is a gold standard. In its purest form, this involves a legal definition of the dollar as a specified amount of gold. Now, the gold standard has much to commend it. It disciplines the overissue of currency, restrains monetary meddlers, and has a pretty good track record. The problem is that it makes the price level a hostage to supply and demand in the gold market. So can we do better? Now, there have been many proposals down the, down the years. Most of these don't work, either because they depend on an unstable pricing relationship or because they're vulnerable to speculative attack. But there are two that are promising. One is a BRIC standard, believe it or not. The other is a system in which the commodity content of the dollar is automatically adjusted uh, to, to maintain price stability. A version of this system was proposed in 1892 by an Iron Williams in the Economic Journal. Under his system, the dollar is an amount of gold, but shocks in the gold market are absorbed by automatic changes in the dollar's gold content. This makes for a more stable price level. We can also imagine a whole family of automatic monetary standards, uh, commodity standards, that use a feedback rule. These are analogous to thermostat systems. So there's an input the outside temperature, and the system responds to this input by automatically adjusting the control variable, which is the energy used to heat the, 
heat the room to maintain a stable room temperature. Their monetary equivalents work on the same principle, and our simulations suggest that these systems would work and be attack-proof. There are more details in the paper, but I want to focus on the second pillar, which is uh, recapitalizing the banks. Now, in the late 19th century, US banks had capital ratios of 40 to 50%. By the eve of the crisis, the top 10 banks' ratios had fallen to under 3%. The big banks also grew enormously. All this in response to government interventions to support the banking system, deposit insurance, etc. The banks responded by maximizing the value of their risk-taking subsidy. They ran down their capital, took more risks, and grew too big. So the pressing task is to recapitalize them. The required minimum capital standards need to be much higher and much less gameable than they currently are. The exact numbers don't matter. What does matter is that the capital ratios be much higher, the numerator and denominator be defined prudently without risk weights or useless models. These proposals would have a number of benefits. They would force banks to bear much more of the downside risk. This would reduce moral hazard and make the banking system safe. They would remove the distorted incentives created by risk weights and useless models. They would penalize riskier positions and drive out much of the toxicity that still infects the banking system. We would also propose a big supplementary requirement for sci-fi banks. This would squeeze them so that they shrink, take fewer risks, and cease to be the threats they now are. These capital requirements should be imposed quickly. And they would be enforced by a very simple rule. Banks would not be allowed to make distributions of bonuses or, or, uh, or dividends until compliant, and no stock buybacks either. Banks would then be pressured to become compliant as soon as possible. Banks with good prospects would be able to do so quickly by issuing more equity. Zombie banks would not. The market reaction to their stock offerings would flush them out, and they should be put down. Now, naturally, the prospect of losing their lunch bucket would make bankers howl like hyenas. So far, bankers have fought off meaningful reform by promoting self-serving misconceptions to defend their subsidized risk-taking. These are the bankers' new clothes of Admati and Helvig's book. The bank's message is that the modest Basel III capital increases are a huge imposition to be fought at all costs. Now, the first misconception is that the banks are already capital adequate. Well, recent figures suggest that the big eight sci-fi banks have capital to total asset ratios of a little over 7% under GARP and just over 5% under IFRS. The latter is more reliable because of stricter rules applied to netting, etc., but no accounting standards address the risk posed by enormous off-balance sheet positions. So the banks are still massively over-leveraged. The second misconception is that higher capital would increase costs. Not true. Non-bank corporates have much lower leverage and some don't borrow at all. Now this argument ignores the benefit, the banker's argument ignores the benefits of higher capital like greater safety. However, higher capital is costly to bankers and to their shareholders because it reduces the value of their subsidy. But when bankers complain that capital is expensive, they only consider the cost to themselves. They ignore the cost of their risk taking to everyone else and in fact, the social consequences of higher capital are zero. Higher capital can be achieved by, merely by reshuffling claims between investors, bank investors. Now, the third argument is that higher capital would restrict bank lending and hinder growth. Well, consider this. If this were right, then the bank should increase their leverage even further, notwithstanding that excessive leverage was a key contributor to the crisis and is still impeding recovery. So this cannot be right. Now let me just turn to the next slide. Consider these two quotes. <clears throat> Think of capital as a rainy day fund. The new rules would demand that banks maintain more dollars on reserve for no new economic work. Higher capital requirements would require the building up of an idle buffer an idle, a buffer of idle resources not otherwise engaged in production. These claims come from experts who really should know better. The first is from Wayne Abernathy of the ABA, and the second from Alan Greenspan. However, these claims are false because they mix up the two sides of the bank's balance sheets. 
They would be correct applied to reserve requirements, but they're false applied to capital requirements. Capital requirements constrain how banks obtain their funds, but do not constrain how they use them. Reserve requirements, on the other hand, constrain how banks use their funds, but do not constrain how they obtain them. So capital is not a rainy day fund that constrains excess lending. So sorry guys, you get an F in corporate finance. Then there's the time is not right bugbear, which is just an excuse for forbearance. As far as bankers are concerned, the time is not right to raise equity when things are going well. And the time is certainly not right when things are going badly. So the time is never right, period. And last but least, as of my favorite, is the level playing field excuse. Higher capital would disadvantage our banking industry relative to foreign competition. Bankers everywhere make this same excuse against bankers everywhere else. But it's not true. It's not true because it, it, it implies that capital is costly, and it's not. It also ignores the evidence that higher capital supports a more resilient banking sector and is actually good for competitiveness. It is, however, a damn good stick to wave at local, uh, local politicians. So let's move to the third pillar, which is the rest to restore strong corporate governance. The key here is to establish strong personal liability on the part of decision makers. We propose that bank directors be subject to unlimited strict personal liability. Strict liability would strip them of any excuses. If it happened on their watch, they would be liable. This would encourage, encourage bankers to take much greater interest in risk management and shut down the high-risk operations that could rebound on them personally. There's also the question of whether there should be extended liabilities for shareholders. In the United States, double liability was common until the 30s. It made for conservative banking and low leverage. It provided reassurance to clients and greatly reduced the moral hazards associated with the separation of ownership and control. This led to strong governance and a tight grip on risk-taking. But we would go further. The default should be unlimited liability. Now, American bankers, American investment banks, were all unlimited liability partnerships until the 80s, and the last to convert was the vampire squid in 1986. Their risk-taking then went horribly wrong afterwards, precisely because they were no longer liable for it. Above all, unlimited liability creates exactly the right incentives. If we want the guardians of our money to guard it as carefully as if it were their own, then unlimited liability is the obvious and only choice. The last pillar is to roll back government intervention in banking. The first step is deregulation. Now, we can't quantify the full costs of financial regulation, but they are certainly enormous. Regulation is a huge and growing drag on the economy. We would propose a bonfire of the lot from Dodd-Frank back to truth in lending. Then we need to eliminate the various GSEs that promote excessive risk-taking. Very briefly, there are Fannie and Freddie. These have no useful role to play in the economy and did enormous damage the last time round. There's deposit insurance, which encourages risk-taking by protecting bankers against the consequences of their own actions. And then there's the most difficult GSE of all, the Federal Reserve. Now, tasks here include, among many others, rolling back its supervisory and regulatory roles, privatizing Fedwire, ending the last resort function, closing down the discount window, phasing out its currency, and winding down its balance sheet, etc., etc. The way would then be clear to phase out capital regulation itself, which would no longer be necessary. Finally, we need to confront the biggest problem of all, the bankster in the room. Recovery will continue to fail until we break the oligarchy that is blocking reform. Now, Simon Johnson observed that in any crisis, the biggest obstacle to recovery is the politics. Countries are in a desperate mess for one reason. The powerful elites took too many risks. Governments and their private sector allies commonly form a tight-knit oligarchy, running the country like a profit-seeking co company in which they, have the they are the controlling shareholders. There's a catch-22 here. The government's velvet glove won't, won't put the banks on their feet because the bankers are used to, getting, to doing business on their own destructive terms. On the other hand, the economy can't recover until the banks are healthy again. 
So to quote Senator Richard Durbin, the banks are still the most powerful lobby on Capitol Hill. They frankly own the place. And he's right. We're never going to make real progress until we take the crony out of capitalism. Simple as that. And thank you very much. We have some time for questions. Uh, please uh, wait for the microphone and um, identify yourself. Uh, okay, uh, right here in the front. Me again. <clears throat> George Selgin from uh, the uh, Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Somebody was complaining to me earlier that we speakers haven't been disagreeing with each other enough. So I, I, I'd like to rectify that problem by re <clears throat> reminding Kevin <clears throat> that he spoke earlier of how a good doctor recommends cures uh, based on prior diagnosis of the disease, and bad ones just ask for more of the stuff that's been causing the problem. Well, you spoke of how government intervention in banking in the shape of risk, risk subsidies has led to the, had led to the erosion of bank capital. And you propose as a solution more government intervention in the shape of minimum capital requirements. So my first question to you is, what sort of doctor are you? <laughs> uh, my second question is, how do you suppose that a bank that has high capital requirements imposed on it without addressing the ultimate sources of moral hazard uh, can fail to end up simply squandering capital because the creditors of the bank have no skin in the game, and therefore it's bound, bankers are bound to chase after high risk as long as creditors do, and it doesn't matter how much capital you stuff in them, you delay the inevitable, but then you waste that much more. Those, those are my two questions. Okay, George, well, thank you. Um, what sort of doctor am I? Well, probably a quack. But the whole point of my talk was to get us to a position where we don't have any government intervention in the system at all. But we have to address the problem of how to get from here to there. And so I think temporarily high capital requirements are a necessary means of getting the banking system on its feet again. Um, on the second point, I'm not quite sure um, if I understand your question. Um, are you saying that the banks would just load up on uh, that the banks would simply load up on risky positions under the proposals yeah. I'm making? So let's suppose we've got two two banks. They're both too big to fail. That is, they're both relying on the prospects of a bailout in the event that they get into trouble, and they, we, we stuff them full of capital. So we know the shareholders are going to lose a lot of wealth if, in fact, the risks don't pay off. But in the meantime, we have this problem. The insured, implicitly insured creditors are going to go after the bank. They're going to put their money wherever they get the highest, highest non-risk adjusted return. Mm -hmm. So if one banker says, we don't want to lose all our share value, uh, so we'll play it safe, and the other banker plays it less safe, guess which bank wins? Unless creditors are on the hook unless you get rid of the implicit guarantees to the creditors, the, the, the mere presence of higher capital requirements doesn't itself per, uh, resolve the moral hazard problem. It does, put, it does put a bigger cushion there, so it takes longer for the banks to go broke, but there can still be a tendency for the banks to take excessive risks that can ultimately make them go broke. That is, you have to think of what... what, what competition among banks forces the share the owners uh, sorry the management to do in the presence of too big to fail where creditors are determining which banks get to play with the money well, okay george i mean first off in the, under our proposed system you would among other things shrink the too big to fail banks so they were no longer uh, such a problem but if you're referring to the transitory capital requirements which are not risk based explicitly not risk based then you're falling into another one of the fallacies, but the one that Anatad Marty missed and was the, was the following thing. And this came up in our discussions on Capitol Hill, and the logic goes as follows, the argument goes as follows. You have 
no risk weighting, so therefore bankers facing a choice between risky assets and safe assets will all load up on the risky assets. But that only presupposes that someone else is bearing the downside. If the banks are heavily capitalized, then the bankers have no incentive to load up on the risky assets because they're bearing them themselves. And, and also your corporate governance issues would be solved. Maybe, maybe we could uh, continue the argument. Uh, okay. Uh, is that you, Bert? Okay. Uh, this is a, a question for Kevin. Uh, during this period of time of high, ca oh, excuse me, my name is Bert Ely, uh, banking and monetary policy consultant. Uh, Kevin, uh, during this period when banks would be subject to high capital requirements, um, what would be your concern about uh, capital arbitrage and the the incentive uh, for the growth of shadow banking? I think we've seen that before, where. Uh, financial engineers and tax lawyers and so forth create new financial structures that sidestep and avoid the high capital requirements put on high uh, on highly regulated banks. So my question is, how do you deal with the uh, the, the incentive uh, to arbitrage ca high capital requirements and the uh, emergence of a shadow banking industry as a result? I would say that the emergence of the shadow banking industry was in large part a consequence of capital arbitrage, which was itself created by the capital and other rules. And so I, I would fundamentally see those problems disappearing, but in the, in the short term, you, I can't design, I'm not smart enough to design a system in, in which I can anticipate uh, the, the possible ways in which there could be some arbitrage from the banking sector with these rules to the shadow banking system. Maybe Martin can, but I can't. But I think, yeah. by and large, I think it would be, posit it would be a, a positive development in eliminating most arbitrage. Okay. Uh, excuse me, you're gonna have to identify yourself. Uh, uh, okay, I'm sorry, Martin. Um, would you like to say something? Firstly, on that point, it's not a problem because we don't care if another bunch of shareholders wants to go up and own, a, say, risky housing assets. Why not? They can own it and they can lose their money, so long as the bank isn't guaranteeing it. But the bank wouldn't be able to guarantee it because it would have to put a 100% capital requirement against the guarantee. So there's no capital arbitrage. There's no way that you can use the bank's balance sheet twice, which is what you're doing at the moment. It's not an arbitrage. However, my other question, or my actual question, relates to um, your pupil, uh, Kevin, but the question's for the whole panel. Andy Haldane has recommended in Britain that they abolish cash, which they're fairly close to doing because everybody's using these silly debit cards. They abolish cash so that central bankers really have freedom to go in the opposite direction from which all we're all recommending and have negative interest rates. So two questions. One, what's the risk of that happening here? And two, what would an economy with a minus 5% interest rate look like? In other words, where would the lending and so on go? It's a good question. Uh, who'd like to take it? Kevin start because it was directed to Okay, well, I, I think, um, I'm trying to remember the question. What would it look like? It would look horrendous. It'd be a monetary hell. But the, um, I think there's a danger we get get caught in a, a deflationary collapse and eventually what we would see is the, uh, the economy would just fall apart eventually. Um, but but it, what's the danger of this happening in the United States? Very considerable uh, for two reasons. One is that the Bank of England punches above its weight at international meetings, but much more importantly because we see the same tendencies here uh, and it, there's every danger that it could happen in the United States before it would happen in Britain. Jerry, what would a world look like where people are taxed for holding cash? Well, in, a, in an implicit sense, they already are. But as I noted in, in my paper, over half of the approximately 1.4 trillion Federal Reserve notes are held outside the United States. Um, and all, all of the growth, especially large denomination, are outside. So I can see how some politicians... Uh, would like to have more than just inflation, inflation debasement of the purchasing power of the currency as a way to tax. I mean, those the people are already making a non-interest-bearing loan 
um, to the U.S. Uh, so I, when I saw the, the piece that you're referring to, I thought, well, this will help accelerate the political dialogue uh, on the paper that I presented at this conference last year, and that is what are the obstacles, and they're all political, but uh, to having a parallel alternative competitive currency um, and those kind of propositions, whether they come from a politician or a central banker, just will help increase the attention, the attention to alternative proposals. It'll never happen. Okay, uh, David. Thanks, David Malpass and Seema. Uh, I guess I'll continue on the same topic and ask Larry about uh, neg this negative rates topic. Larry said or implied in, in his talk that one reason the uh, Fed was able to hold on to excess reserves is because of the IOR. They're paying the banks. So I want to postulate, uh, or so I'll make an assertion, that the Fed could move into negative rates uh, and could lower the IOR uh, and the reserves would still stay there at the Fed because the Fed still has its assets. So in reality, the, the reserves are staying at the Fed because of regulatory policy. We have a tight regulatory overlay, so that makes possible a negative rate. They could just slow us right into a negative rate if they want to. Uh, so the question is, would the banks voluntarily hold such great excess reserves if they were paying a negative return? Yeah. And, of course, they can't spend them out of existence, but they can lend them in such a way that <coughs> generates a return to the money multiplier we used to have. Right? It's no longer attractive to hold excess reserves, and banks' attempts to get rid of excess reserves generate deposit creation in the system as a whole. It wouldn't, that wouldn't affect the Fed's liabilities, but it would mean that the policy was now inflationary. We and, don't know and that. And if the Fed wants to keep its 2% inflation target, then it has a problem. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go up the middle. We have time for one or two more questions. Right in front of me here, sir. About uh, one, two, three, four, five rows up. There you go. William Luther Kenyon College and Cato's CMFA. My question's for Larry. Um, what would you say is the motivation for the Fed's transition from monetary policy to fiscal policy, and and how big of the mag how big is the magnitude? I mean, on the one hand, it's like four times as much as it was remitting in the early two thousands. On the other hand. What, two-thirds of a percent of the budget, something around that area? It's a good question. And when I ask my friends inside the Federal Reserve System, and I do have some, <laughs> uh, they have to speculate about what Bernanke's theory was. But apparently his theory was that you needed to preserve the housing industry in order to preserve the public's uh, perception of their own wealth in order to preserve consumer demand for goods and services. So they wanted to prop up housing, and then the Treasury purchases uh, partly to, again, prop up housing by buying long-term Treasuries and bring down long-term rates. And there's a little bonus for the Treasury in a period in which it was issuing unprecedented amounts of debt. Uh, its debt service costs didn't go up. So. That, those seem to me to be the two most obvious motives. But exactly how this theory works, that we need to preserve the housing industry in order to have an economic recovery, uh, you'd have to ask somebody else. Okay. Um, right here. Keith Weiner from the Gold Standard Institute. I just It's not a question. It's more of a comment about negative interest rates. If the... Banks can borrow at negative and lend at a less negative. They've got a positive spread, so they'll be happy to do that all day long. Now, think about it from the business perspective. If you could borrow at minus two and destroy wealth at minus one and scale that up across the entire economy, to, to Kevin Dowd's point, it's going to be enormously destructive and the entire economy collapses when you go into negative interest rates to that degree. So Irving Fisher's been mentioned earlier today. This is the world of Irving Fisher's economy where there's nothing but rotting figs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have um, I have a uh, 
sorry, go ahead. Did, did you? Okay. I have a final question. Is Are there any bond market money managers in the audience? Okay. I would like to do something different and ask you a question. So I have never seen a paper by the Federal Reserve that says selling a modest amount of mortgage-backed securities, showing the commitment to reduce the balance sheet would be destabilizing. From what I can see, the housing market looks pretty good. So I'd like to ask you, sir, or you, sir, would it be? I'll, I'll state the question again. If the Fed, if the Fed said, here is my commitment to reducing the balance sheet. We're going to sell a modest amount of mortgage-backed securities every year. Here's the amount. David would it be Burkle. destabilizing to the mortgage market? Um, I, would it be destabilizing? Um, you would have to be consistent, and you're going to have to find another buyer. But if I realize as a money manager that you own, I think the chart was a trillion eight. Right. Yeah. Okay, and you're going to start selling a trillion eight of something. I manage six and a half billion. I'm probably not going to be the first bidder. <laughs> I might wait a while. Right. And the other reason for that is I don't trust you. I just flat out don't trust. I just know you own a lot of something. <laughs> I remember when they wrote a piece, I think it was in the summer of 13, where they talked about how they would actually sell some of this stuff off. And my comment to my shareholders were, to whom? You own them all, and we know it. I mean, I've traded for years. Once I figure out who the biggest owner is of something, that's the person I pay attention to. So I don't really see where they can exit these things. Okay. That's an excellent point. Thank you. I think uh, uh, that's it. We're going to have our last speaker, who I believe is a member of Congress.